Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, the post office scandal has been described as the biggest miscarriage of justice in British legal history. We'll speak to the people who had their lives ruined by it and the company who found the truth. And battleground Britain, Rishi Sunak takes on Keir Starmer in the fight for the political landscape across the Midlands. Plus, London Mayor Sadiq Khan bows to rail union bosses again, offering striking workers a bumper pay deal. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the brand new 2024 version of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. As you can see, we've made some changes over the Christmas holidays, and I'm delighted to say we'll be forging new and fascinating partnerships over the coming months to keep you all informed and entertained every weekday night. From 9 to 11pm, we'll bring you the best of the big debates, breaking news every night, and those huge exclusives that you're already used to getting from Talk TV. We'll always highlight injustice, we'll continue to expose hypocrisy, and we'll be holding all politicians to account in this all-important election year. Most of all, of course, we want to hear from you. We are here to augment your thoughts, to listen to what you have to say, and to tell everybody else. This is, after all, the only independent Republican Mike Graham in the known world. Tonight, we've got one hell of a show for you because so much of the news is scandalous, outrageous and incredibly unfair. Kicking off with the post office scandal that has rocked the nation thanks to the ITV drama Mr Bates versus the Post Office, a television show which appears to have galvanised an entire nation behind so many thousands of victims. We'll be speaking to the man who first uncovered the story back in 2009, to one of the sub-postmasters falsely accused and convicted of stealing £75,000 back in 2011, and we've got Peter Hitchens too, who will tell us why he believes those calling for Chief Executive Paula Vennels to hand back her CBE are mistaken. It seems incredible, doesn't it, that these poor individuals have been victimised not once, not twice, not ten times, but continually for decades. Even the Prime Minister struggled to explain why it is taking so long to get proper and full compensation. No one seems to know how on earth we could have got here. I'll also be asking why we're expecting to have to deal with another two million people claiming disability benefits because of the huge increase in those suffering from depression and anxiety. Are we really sure and can we afford it? I say we can't and we shouldn't. We're also looking at Labour tonight because London Mayor and Plank of the Week, Sadiq Khan, has given us a clue just how Sir Keir Starmer would deal with the unions. You guessed it, he'd roll over and give them everything they ask for. And there's a pest controller in attendance as well because I'm sorry to say, filthy Britons have caused yet another outbreak of rats all over the country. They're eating us out of house and home. Is it any wonder? And there's plenty of surprises too in the world headquarters of Common Sense. Plus, we'll give you a first look at what the big news stories will be tomorrow. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Welcome to the brave new world. <laughs> now.
Now, what do you want the government to do for the hundreds of victims wrongfully convicted by the post office? And should the woman who ran it during the scandal be stripped of that CBE she's refusing to give up? You can get in touch with me. The Republic's phone lines and mailroom are already open for business. Call us on 0344 499 1000. Text the word TALK plus your message to 87222. Or tweet me at TALK TV using the hashtag IROMG. Cost uh, of those calls will just be the national rate. Now, let's kick off with the main story on everyone's lips and what has been described as the largest miscarriage of justice in UK Legal history, that's right, the post office scandal. While the case has been public knowledge for some time, an ITV drama, Mr Bates versus the post office, has thrust the issue back into the spotlight. Last summer, our very own Jeremy Kyle did a deep dive investigation into the scandal. Here's what it's all about. In 2002, the Steven Spielberg box office hit Minority Report was released. In the dystopian sci-fi future portrayed there, people were arrested and jailed for crimes they hadn't actually committed. Sadly, this dystopia turned into a reality for far too many people working for one of the most iconic British organisations, the Post Office. How did seven people end up dead from arguably one of the biggest injustices in British history? All the courts now have said that my husband was right. He said to me, I want my name cleared. Anything else is a bonus, I want my name cleared. And I promised him that. I promised him that the week before he died. At the start of the millennium, the post office introduced a new IT system called Horizon. It was designed by Japanese company Fujitsu. Now, Horizon was used as an accounting software, but some sub-postmasters reported errors in it and that the books weren't balancing properly, showing financial irregularities where there were none. Most disgustingly, post office management believed the software and data over their loyal workforce, who they accused of theft and fraud because the books weren't balanced. Between 2000 and 2013, some 700 sub-postmasters may have been unjustly prosecuted by the post office. Some were literally sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit. We want the postmasters who fought to expose this injustice through the High Court to receive compensation on a similar basis to their peers. 86 convictions have already been quashed and the toll it's taken on them has been quite devastating. I can't describe it and I don't think anyone would know how it feels to stand up in court and plead guilty to something of, you know, that's as serious as that when you know that you haven't done it and the only reason that you're doing it is that you, you haven't got the tools to defend yourself and you're trying to mitigate uh, you know, the chance of a custodial sentence. No one from either the post office or Fujitsu has been held accountable for the trauma their workers were put through. The public inquiry into the Horizon scandal was subject to delays for the second time. And for too many workers, the delivery of justice has been virtually non-existent. With me in the studio to discuss this appalling scandal is Talk TV political correspondent Alicia Fitzgerald and editor of Computer Weekly, the magazine that uncovered the truth, Brian Click. Uh, welcome to both of you. But first, hundreds of people up and down this country are still seeking justice. And tonight, we are joined by wrongly convicted postmaster Vipin Patel and his son Varchas. Thank you both uh, for coming on. Um, let me come to you, Varchas, first. I mean, it's an extraordinary story, this. I think a lot of people can't quite believe that it's been going on for as long as it has been. And I was watching Rishi Sunak talking at the weekend as though... They can't understand how they got here. They don't understand why there are three different schemes that are paying people uh, compensation. Nobody seems to know anything, really, 
about what went wrong. Um, yeah, the Prime Minister did unfortunately get a couple of things wrong, well, a couple of big things wrong. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, this wasn't such a historic uh, injustice in the early 90s. In fact, it started from 1999. Um, and I find it astonishing how the Prime Minister um, can actually get these these horrible facts wrong. Um, it begs the question, um, who's actually advising him? Yeah. And you wonder whether they actually care enough, don't you? Because we've had one politician after another today uh, and all over the weekend basically washing their hands of it, saying it wasn't their fault. They were advised not to talk to people. They didn't really understand what was going on. They just assumed it was a post office problem. I mean, it really is extraordinary. It is. Um, and I'm, I'm finding uh, through, uh, well, in the, in the past uh, number of days, there is a lot, a lot of finger pointing going on. But more evidently, um, during the post office inquiry, that is exactly what su uh, some of the former post office lawyers are doing. It's, it's literally buck passing and I have no recollection or I do not recall. Um, now, if you were part of a team that wrongfully prosecuted somebody, you attended court, surely you can recall those events. So I'm finding um, right now everyone's kind of um, pointing fingers at one another, but the true victims over here is the actual victim, like my father, a former sub-postmaster, and hundreds of others, if not thousands, um, in his shoes, yes. who haven't been compensated. I've just watched uh, Mr. Hollenrake's um, uh, speech. My, my MP, uh, Dr. Rupert Hark, raised the question as to why my father has not been offered an interim payment. I have categorically on on my Twitter platform and uh, other media outlets ha have said my father has been re refused an interim payment. Yet he's responded to my MP of Acton and Ealing, oh, sorry, Ealing and Acton Central to say Mr. Patel has been offered an interim payment. Now, I wouldn't be putting this case across in the public domain if my dad had actually been offered an interim payment. No, exactly right. And, and let me ask um, uh, your dad, Vipin, um, I mean, you were convicted uh, of defrauding the post office and, and I suppose by association the government of £75,000 and yet you've still not received anything? Yes. Um, they charged me with fraud and uh, because uh, I made a confession because I didn't want to go to prison and other compelling reasons... Mm. And also the post office solicitor advised me that if I plead guilty, they will make my life easier. I still haven't received anything. And I have a conviction which is overturned. My conviction was overturned four months before the famous Court of Appeal ruling in April 2021. My conviction was overturned in December 2020. Mm. Now, post office did not offer any evidence when my conviction was being overturned and they let my appeal be successful. With, with no evidence being given, my conviction was quashed. Mm. But what, what the post office is now playing cunningly is on a legal, legal technicality by saying, we only let it be uh, uh, quashed because it it wasn't in public interest to retry me. 
Uh, that's a bit of a lie because if if a criminal is a criminal, if you need to retry them again, you would retry them right. again. But the only reason they didn't retry me is because they had no evidence. And in my case, I was with with the post office uh, uh, thing uh, inquiry for a long time since 2012, since Second Sight started investigations, and I had given them plenty of Horizon-related evidence. And then I had given it to Criminal Cases Review Commission. And then I had given it to GLO solicitors for rates. And so, I mean, there was plenty of evidence mm. which uh, post office had before my conviction was quashed, but they did a dirty and played uh, cunningly to say, we're not going to retry this again and not offering any evidence. So if you don't offer any evidence and uh, say that uh, uh, I, I can't be allowed interim payment or compensation is wholly wrong in itself because not having evidence is then they shouldn't have charged me in well, the first place. Well, of course they place. shouldn't. If they didn't have any evidence, then how did it get to that point? Let me bring Brian and Alicia back into this. Brian, I mean, I saw a tweet from you saying that, you know, you've waited since 2009 for the BBC to lead on this story. Yeah. They finally did it today. I mean, it's hard <laughs> to imagine. I mean, I've done bits and pieces on this story over the years, but, I mean, it's incredible that it's taken an ITV drama to sort of put it, propel it, really, into the sort of public domain. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it is fantastic to see what has happened as a result yeah. of that drama. You know, I, there's, no, there's no bitterness about that at all. You know, that this is finally giving the victims the, mm. the, the profile and hopefully will give them the outcome that they've been after for, for so long. But yes, you know, this, this has been in the public domain for a long, a long, long time. Mm. It's, it's been talked about in select committees. There, there have been debates in Parliament, typically those sort of debates with one or two people yeah. from either side in there in this vast empty House, House of Commons. There's a small number of, of MPs and parliamentarians who've been very vocal about this, but it's never broken outside, outside of that. Partly I think that's because there's, there's been this sort of, oh, it's computers, computers yeah. are a bit complicated and boring. Partly it's because the, po the post office has quite aggressively behind the scenes been saying to people, this is not true, there is no story here. Yeah. Uh, and... and because the post office were perceived as this trusted organisation, they called themselves the Brit Britain's most trusted brand, um, people listened to them over the victims. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting, Alicia, isn't it? Because we've seen sort of politics in action here. I mean, quite a lot of local MPs, um, as Brian says, were quite vocal. They wrote letters to ministers. You know, we've seen the Ad Davy sort of uh, mealy-mouthed excuses. I heard... Um, uh, other politicians talking today about what they should have done, maybe, but didn't do. Vince Cable was on uh, Talk TV with Julie Hartley Brewer, sort of basically saying, well, he didn't think that there was much that he could have done. I mean, it's an extraordinary expose, isn't it, of, of how politics doesn't work in Britain? It is for sure. And I think it's one of the few cases that has spanned across so many governments that it can't be party political. It started under mm. a Labour government, right. then went to the coalition under the Lib Dems and the Conservatives, and then for a bit under the Conservatives right. on their own. So literally no one there can really get away scot-free right. and say that they had no control over it and they couldn't have contributed. Pat McFadden was the minister for the post office under the Labour government. He says he doesn't recall this issue at the time. He says that the main focus was always on post office right. closures and that's what he spent his time focusing on. Ed Davey, we've obviously heard a lot about that today. Mm. He's the current leader of the Liberal Democrats. He said that 
that post office lied to him and that he would have had no other way of knowing. Obviously, the victims then say, hang on, yeah. you just didn't listen to us. You chose to listen to the post office yes. rather than the victims. And then we've just had successive governments, successive people who had the power to really step in, mm. try and just rid themselves of this and say, oh, it wasn't me, it was the person before me. Yeah. And sadly, because it spanned over such a long period of time, that seems to work at the moment. No one really is getting the full no. blame for this. And that seems to be the problem because no uh, matter what has happened in the past, I mean, they could solve it now. I'm looking at a story in The Times today, came out tonight, saying that a law to quash all the relatively uh, recent post office convictions could be done tomorrow uh, if they wanted to do it. But let's have a look at what Rishi Sunak says. He said he would strongly support any decision to consider removing ex-post office boss Paul and Vanel's CBE. A petition to do so has now topped a million signatures with campaigners calling for justice and compensation for all the victims of the Horizon IT scandal. Talk TV's Ollie Whitfield Mircic has been to pay a visit to Miss Venel. Just behind me is the home of Paula Venels, the former CEO of the post office between 2012 and 2019, right at the time that the Horizons accounting scandal was in full swing. We've come to her large Bedfordshire home here in the countryside to ask her if she will be handing back her CBE. That's because a petition calling for her to be stripped of that gong has garnered more than a million signatures so far. However, Paula Venels isn't at home today, so we won't be getting those answers anytime soon. Instead, we're going to go and ask locals in the nearby former parish where she used to be the vicar whether that's what she should do. It was a disgrace. For people to take their own lives and everything is absolute thing. She should be bowing her head in shame. She needs to be stripped. It's the big people getting away with um, individuals not believing what they say. Not good at all. It's uh, it's a disgrace. Disgrace, absolute disgrace. I'm glad the prime minister's got hold of it, and uh, let's hope that he he does something, you know, for the people before Quickly. the before the election. She should go and strip, be stripped of the. She should have done it before now. Let's go back to um, Varshas and, and his father, Vipin Patel, um, the victims, two of the victims, two of many victims in this terrible, terrible story. Um, Varshas, let me, let me just ask you, I mean, how, how has this affected your lives? It's hard to imagine what your answer is going to be, but, I mean, this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, I was 23 when father was wrongfully prosecuted. Um, my life literally went upside down. I lost friends. Um, I was at the time, at the material time of 2011, on a number of occasions, I was taunted, insulted by um, a couple of the parish councillors at the time. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't nice. On, what, on one occasion, um, one of the councillors at the material time said, um, well, made fun out of my dad by saying there's a for sale sign out, outside the shop. Uh, your dad's not going to be able to survive um, uh, running the shop much longer because, unfortunately, um, rumours started to spread in the village uh, straight away from uh, dad's uh, suspension on the 8th of December, December 2011. And um, he, dad received some initial support, but there was also um, a cohort of people literally who wanted my father dead, and they wanted to drive my father out of the village, mum and dad out of the village. They literally made our lives hell. Um, and me, I I live between London and Oxford. 
Um, it was difficult to make friends in in London as well. Um, it was difficult for, for me to even open up to my employer about my father's wrongful conviction. I um, it, it was only until 2019 did I tell my manager at the time after about eight, nine years of employment, um, I, I took him into a meeting room and I was literally shivering as I was speaking to him, um, hoping uh, um, my former employer wouldn't sack me because my father's got a wrongful fraud conviction on him. It, life was terrifying. Yeah, it, it, it really was. Just dreadful. Pippa, let me just ask you, finally, I mean, Paula Venels has got a CBE. She's disappeared. Nobody's quite sure where she is. Would you like to see her being stripped of that? I, th I think definitely, but it's in this uh, cohort of uh, people who have been culprits, it's just not Paula Vanels. There's a lot more in there. So we, we need to find all of them and they need to be made, they all need to be made accountable. And mm -hmm. if they all need to be prosecuted or convicted, so be it, because it is important that ordinary people's lives who are true to their words and serving communities. In my case, it's a rural community and most of the postmasters were doing the same. And uh, breaking the public trust and stabbing the pe very people who serve the community, stabbing in the back by the post office, which is an arm of the government, yeah. was in itself wholly unjust and unfair. Mm. They should have thought better how to handle this situation because they knew from day one, even before Horizon was rolled out, that it was faulty and shouldn't have been allowed to have happened. Yeah. And if they did want to roll it out, they should have made fail-safe systems to make sure ordinary people are not punished for some things that was technically wrong. Absolutely right. Look, Vipin and, and Varshas, I wish you both the best in the, in, in the future sort of battle with the post office. Uh, we're going to try and get to the bottom of it here. We'll do as much as we can uh, at Talk TV. Brian, let me come back to you. I mean, why is it so complicated? Why have they got three different compensation schemes? Why has the post office not had all of that taken away from them? You know, so many whys. I know mean, we haven't got enough time <laughs> to get through all of it, but, yeah. but you know, what, what is the problem here? Why is it so complicated? It, it, it's because so much has accumulated over, over, over such a long time. Um, there, there are, you know, different sub-postmasters were treated differently. Some were sent, some were sent to jail. Yeah. Some were convicted and not sent to jail. Some were just forced to pay money back that they were accused of having stolen. Which they hadn't stolen. Um, you know, everybody talks, and, and your report earlier on talk, talked about these being... Um, you know, innocent victims convicted of, of crimes they didn't commit. It's worse than that. These are people who are convicted of crimes that never took place. Um, you know, the, 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 and the, the complexity that the post office have built into this mm. is partly why things are so complicated now. You know, the post office was judge, jury and prosecutor for all of these people. Right. Now it's the company that's responsible for working out how much compensation they get paid mm. by the post office. Yes. That, that's clearly it's absurd. Kind of unprecedented, isn't it? And an awful lot of lawyers getting very rich on yeah. it as well. I mean, they should, the, 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 I mean, the, the should be just pointing to say the, the the post office has reputedly spent over a hundred million pounds on on, le on lawyers and legal fees yeah. today trying to defend itself. Right, and there is a suggestion, Alicia, that Ed Davy was associated with the law firm, which has also benefited from this entire sort of, you know, sharabang of madness. Um, he was accused of collecting something like £275,000. Is there a political price for him to pay, do you think, here? 
Well, lots of people are calling for him to resign mm. as leader of the Liberal Democrats. He's remained pretty silent about that and kind of has given the message that he doesn't feel like that's necessary. Mm. The issue is, is he's actually called on 31 different individuals yes. to resign over this over, over a long period of time. Mm. Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Matt Hancock, I mean, yeah. you name it, and people outside of politics as well. He's been calling on pretty much everyone to resign. So people are looking at that and really questioning yeah. his integrity. Also, just quickly on Vipin's point, I think he made a good point there about the CBE for Paul Levenels. Yeah. That is a massive issue for people, but it shouldn't be the priority. No. I think people hear Rishi Sunak focusing on that and just think, you know, you should be focusing on the victims yeah. first. First things first, get the compensation there, do whatever you can to get right. justice. The last thing that should be yeah. the priority there is stripping her of yeah. the CBE in terms of the pecking order yeah. and what's important. Yeah, no, I think absolutely many, many people would agree with you. Um, Shane says Paula Venel should have her CBE removed and she should be prosecuted for the horrendous crimes that she committed. Um, Ruth says get Fujitsu on, who created and sold this faulty system called Horizon, to pay due compensation. As for those who agreed to and got Horizon installed and rejected the findings by sub-postmasters, sub they should be taken to court for fraud and for ignoring the facts. I mean, I think all of those things are, are true, and I've never seen really anything quite so um, unifying for this country. I think the country is completely unified uh, for the first time probably in the last 10 years over one subject. Uh, guys, thank you very much indeed. Brian Glick, Lisa Fitzgerald, uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Do not move a muscle, because we're going to find out how disgraced MP Peter Bone could be replaced by his own girlfriend. And Keir Starmer is capitalising on floods to push his green agenda. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The fight for Sherwood Forest on battleground Britain has begun as Labour and the Conservatives fight it out in Nottinghamshire to determine who will be crowned the next Robin Hood. The Tories currently control all of Nottinghamshire's parliamentary seats except for three, which are held by Labour. And in May, residents of both Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire will go to the polls in an historic vote on the East Midlands' first mayor. So who could be? the Robin Hood, and who will take on the role of the Sheriff of Nottingham? Uh, here to help us rewrite that story is our panel, political commentator Chloe Dobbs, Deputy Political Director of the Centre for Social Justice, Sophia Warringer, and broadcaster and historian Rafe hadel Manku. Welcome uh, to all of you. We've seen um, various sort of uh, incarnations over the weekend of uh, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. My favourite was Keir Starmer not stopping the football as it was going past him into the goal uh, over the weekend when he was playing for his local team. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure being pa painted as Robin Hood or the Sheriff of Nottingham is particularly good for either of them, is it? Well, it will be interesting to see what happens there. Um, there's nothing... For me, I, I don't know about you guys, but I don't find it that impressive, politicians turning up in suits to play football. No. It, it, there's just something re very strange about politicians mm. trying to play sport in yeah. suits. Um, except Boris does seem to do it quite well. He comfortably. seems to do it. Well, I mean, to be fair to Keir Starmer, I mean, he does actually play football for a team. He just doesn't seem to be very good at it. <laughs> no. You know, he, I mean, they got beaten 14-8 no. in, uh, in their latest encounter, which is not exactly a great football score. But anyway, jokes aside, do they really need another mayor here? Sounds like the councils have all gone bankrupt there. Have they got money to put in a mayor as well? Is that just not going to be putting a Band-Aid on... Yeah. A big funding problem. I mean, I just don't think there's much point in doing anything at the moment, apart from talking about this big horizon story. Um, Sophia, you know, it seems to be dominating everything. Rishi Sunak's having to talk about it. Keir Starmer's going to have to say something about it as well, isn't he? Yeah, and this story shows the power of capturing the public's imagination mm. for pushing through change. It wasn't until 
we had this amazing ITV program that showed the story of the people who've missed out and whose lives have been ruined because mm. of this scandal that the politicians suddenly were captured by the attention, even though the investigation has been going on for four years now. Yeah. It's now that it's in the public culture that, as you say, the tomorrow maybe the parliament is going to be bringing through yeah. laws to change it so there are convictions can be overturned more quickly. So it does show the power of culture and TV and telling the story to change things in Westminster. And that's not really how it should be. It shouldn't be responding no. to dramas on the television. Well, that's the thing. And Rafe, I was saying this to, to our previous guests that, you know, this is a great sort of highlighted story as to how politics in this country is kind of broken and how there isn't anybody who seems to be being held responsible. There isn't anybody in either party, or even the Lib Dems either, uh, who's willing to hold their hands up and go, yeah, we got this massively wrong. I haven't heard anybody saying that. Well, it's part of our culture, isn't it? Remember, after the financial crash, how few bankers were actually held to account yeah. for what they did as well. And what's so equally depressing and scandalous about this story is that our government is only a reactive government. Mm. Why did it take so long? Does it do you, is it up to broadcasters to actually uh, you know raise the interests of the public? You know yeah. this was known for so long. There have been so many campaigns about this, and yet the, the, you know, our politicians only seem to act when it's in their own interest to yes. do so. You know, Rishi Sunak only came late to the to the legal immigration issue yeah. once numbers got so high that the media began to get mm. involved in all of this, and we're seeing it yet again. I think it's disgraceful. I mean, I also think Ed Davey needs to speak up as well because, of course, he was minister yeah. in 2010. So it's not just the Tories and the Labour Party who are actually well. They're all uh, they're all need to speak about hard by the same brush, really, aren't they? That is that is really the problem. But again, you know, you've got all sorts of things going on that people. Are concerned about, you know, old uh, uh, Keir Starmer goes up to wonder about where the floods are happening and makes out that it's all the fault of the Tory party. Well, it's not plainly the fault of the Tory party. The reason it places flood in this country is because nobody's taken any care to make sure they don't. And they've actually encouraged environmental protection rules, which make it easier for places to flood. Yeah, it seems like in almost every single area in this country, every single policy area, we just, politicians act with very short-term thinking. Yeah. Um, it's just for putting a Band-Aid on a problem at the last minute when it all goes wrong. Mm. Uh, it's not just flooding, it's healthcare, it's schools with crumbling concrete. Yeah. You remember well, that, that story? that story's gone away, hasn't it? Nobody yeah. talks about schools. But, but everything, it's, we just waited until everything goes wrong rather yeah. than actually, you know, make putting it putting in place long-term policies to stop these big issues like mm. flooding happening in the first place. It's right. absolutely disgraceful and I don't see the problem going away anytime soon because in order to... Because we've left it so long, we'd need so much public money to start fixing right. all of these problems and putting in long-term plans for all of them all mm. at once. If we had gradually put in place long-term solutions for you know, all these different policy areas, we wouldn't be in this mess that we're it in today. It makes you think, doesn't it, Sophia, what exactly the politicians have been doing for the best part of the last 20 years? Because if they haven't been making sure that flooding doesn't happen and they haven't been making sure that, you know, the immigration numbers are under control and they haven't been keeping an eye on the post office scandal... What have they actually been doing? I mean, Rishi Sunak came out and actually said today, um, well, people want me to continue with the plan. I don't know what the plan is. Do you? Well, I think the Labour Party, if they form the next government, will find that being in opposition is a lot easier mm. than being in government. Yeah. It's easy to throw stones from the outside and to talk about the need for long-term planning. But when you're actually in the decision seat and you have to make the choice between spending now with, on issues that are pressing and spending on issues which you won't see the fruit for in for 10, 15 years' time, often the now will win out. And that's difficult, and that's what governing is. It's making mm. those difficult decisions. And I think the Labour Party are waking up to the idea that this will be very difficult, and you can see them 
therefore not wanting to make those commitments in policy in terms of spending because they are concerned that when they actually, if they do, get into the governing seat, it's going to be very difficult for mm. them too. It will be. Peter Bone, let's talk about him, shall we, Rafe? Um, he's another one of these Tory MPs who seems to have a girlfriend who wants to <laughs> run uh, in his place. Uh, it happened to the Elphix down in... Uh, it was his wife, actually, wasn't it? Uh, down in Dover. Peter Bone's got a girlfriend called Helen who apparently has been selected by the local um, uh, Conservative Association to stand in his stead. Is well, he's certainly, he's certainly very good at keeping it in the family. Uh, he his, is. His wife was employed as his executive secretary. <laughs> she's employed as his assistant parliamentary advisor. Right. And uh, now it seems as if you know, she's going to inherit or succeed to his position. Now, of course, you know, Peter Byrne's very much on site politically with myself. Yeah. I don't know how well-liked he is in his constituency, but it seems to be that there was a fear that if he ran as an independent, he would split the vote. Yes. And that, the, and that he was only willing to, to not stand as an independent if this sort of, um, you know, if, if this was given to his, his girlfriend. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it must stink to high heaven, surely, in, in that constituency. Uh, you know, it's just it's another question of, you know, jobs for the boys... Backhand it's a deals. Sort of entitled view of the world, isn't it? Well, if I can't do it, then somebody I really know well, or even my partner, could do it. Yeah, it really seems like nepotism. There yeah. is a lot of people do have this view of the of the Tories and Tory MPs in particular. That yeah. you know, it's it, it's the old boys. I mean, I, I know the partner is a girl, but you get the point. Yeah. Um, it really seems like nepotism, and I mean, do a favour to the party and step back when you've put the party into yeah. a scandal and put them in a bad light. Just live a quiet life. Let them get on, choose another candidate that has nothing to do with you. Although the new candidate for that seat was chosen by the local association, let's not forget. Yeah. So there was a democratic process that was followed. And I imagine CCHQ, were, maybe that wasn't their yeah. first choice candidate, but the democratic process rolled through and that was who came forward as the front well, runner. So it, I, I mean, don't think it's quite as clear-cut as nepotism. No, well, it's, it's telling that Rishi Sunak today refused to endorse the candidate. He was asked point-blank in, <laughs> in a media scrum, and he said, he, he spoke, well, it was the free decision of the local office. As it office, should be. As he said, be. I think that's exactly, But it does stink of a rotten borough, you know? But there are I mean, people who think that Peter Bone's been stitched up as well. I mean, regardless of whatever the allegations are, we don't really know the ins and outs, which we're never allowed to find out. But there are people in his own, you know, constituency that's why I say I don't who know, think I, I, that I he's been given a bit of a rum deal. That's why I say I don't know how well-liked he is in the constituency. It may yeah. be that he was actually going to be a very real threat if he ran as an independent. Right. He's got a five-digit uh, lead in, yeah. in his majority. But, of course, we've seen several five-digit... That doesn't make me <laughs> a thing, now, results no, be overturned. Not. Well, listen, thank you, guys. I know we're going to be talking to you a little bit later on. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Stay right where you are, because Peter Hitchens is coming next to discuss why he thinks the former CEO of the post office should keep her CBE. And also Anthony Hopkins' new film about a hero of the Holocaust. We'll get into that. All coming next. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, over one million people have signed a petition calling for former Post Office CEO Paula Venels to resign. And I'm about to introduce you to a man who disagrees with all of them. It is the one and only author and columnist for The Mail on Sunday, of course, Mr Peter Hitchens. Delighted uh, to welcome you back, Peter. Um, and I actually quite approve of your, um, uh, your view on this, interestingly enough. Uh, so I can't really argue with it. But tell us why you don't think that the stripping of this CBE is, is, is of any point. Well, there are two reasons. First, to do with the people who gave it to her, that they should never be allowed to forget that they did this. And the second 
in her case, that she should not be allowed to forget that she accepted it and it should act constantly for the rest of her life as a spur and a memory to the fact that she needs now to do something very serious to deserve it. And I think that this, this, it's so easy, isn't it, to say, let's take it away. Uh, and then if it's taken away, then it's over and everybody's satisfied and the job is done. I will never be satisfied because having watched the, the tremendous drama last week, which told me far more than I ever knew about the, the matter until then, I don't think that the post office or anybody else who was involved in this will ever be able to give proper restitution for the damage they did to those lives. The people who took their own lives, the people whose marriages were torn to pieces, uh, the people who, who were treated as pariahs by people who previously respected them, uh, the people who went bankrupt and lived for years, which should have been happy and prosperous, as, as, as miserable and pinched. None of that can ever be brought back. And the people who were sent to prison, uh, being sent to prison for something you have not done is just so unbelievably terrible. Uh, that Again, there is, no, there is no restitution, no compensation, no suffering on anybody else's part, which will bring back what's been taken away. So I don't think that campaigning is for someone to, to have a, a bauble, uh, which they've been given and taken away from them, is actually re anything remotely to do with what we need to do to, to approach this. The, the moves which are beginning to take place to actually end this, this interminable process of getting people uh, people's convictions quashed and getting them compensation to allow them to lead something like normal lives, that is now being speeded up. That's the real thing. In the case of Paul and Venels, it's just a person who has stood up as a person of conscience, who's been a minister of the Church of England, who's preached the gospel of Christ to people in a church. She has an enormous task ahead of her for the rest of her life. And if she's still got that CVE, I think it will act as a spur on her to put right as much as she possibly can of the wrong that she's done. And I think that would be far, far better. These, are, these symbolic uh, gesture headline things don't work. And I was, I was always reminded when these things come up of Robert Mugabe, the, the Zimbabwean tyrant, mm. who had been given, I think, a knighthood by the by the British Foreign Office. And everybody said, oh, let's take it away. And I said again, no, don't take it away. Remember, uh, we we actually gave this man a knighthood. Don't forget that we made this mistake. Half the, the thing that we need to take away from this post office, this post office scandal, is to understand that we, many of us were complicit by inaction uh, in allowing a terrible thing to happen. Uh, in not seeing it when it first emerged, in not doing enough to put it right. And we should be much more vigilant. We should change our society. This actually particularly applies to us in the media. We are far too inclined when people are accused of crimes in this country to presume their guilt, not formally by announcing that they're guilty, but by treating an accused person as if he or she is guilty, demanding they be suspended from their job and all the rest of it. But we have no idea whether they're guilty or not. The presumption of innocence really does need a shot in the arm in this country. And that starts with people saying, well, hang on a minute. Uh, the, the, here, here, here is this person. Here is Jane here, who's for many years been an honest person who's, who's been trusted. Uh, pensioners have trusted her in one case with their, with their credit cards, with their debit cards. Uh, she, she's always been honest. And now suddenly here she is up in front of the court uh, being accused of the most terrible wickedness and fraud and theft. Shouldn't we just pause for a moment and wonder whether these charges yeah. are just... There wasn't anything like enough of that. No, and there, there wasn't. should be a lot more of it. There
They wasn't. So instead, they weren't. Instead of going but, on about all the bells is TBE, let's 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 look at ourselves as, as yes. As, but say, there were, but they we were, but there were, Peter, thousands of articles written about it. You know, people say, well, you know, the media didn't really get the whole the grip of this story. They didn't really write much about it. You know, I've actually got a list here from Harry Cole from the Sun, the Times, three hundred eighty-three articles, the Telegraph, two hundred thirty-four articles, the Mail, hundreds more, the Mirror, eighty-three. You know, there's been hundreds and hundreds of articles written. But I'm, let me ask you this though. I mean, I, I take your point um, about the uh, the Venel CBE, but what about all the other sort of senior politicians, ministers, and and other executives of of the company who willfully did not look to see whether they were wrong? Should they also the public, ex escape any kind of uh, sanction? The public can punish politicians at the polls, and it, it can do that, it, 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 especially in the general election year, if it believes that any of these people have been who are still in in positions of, of office, elected office, if it believes that any of those people have, have failed uh, both to do what was right and to, and to provide restitution for the wrong they did, they can punish them uh, by the simple means of, of refusing to vote for them anymore. And that's, uh, the, that's the course I recommend if you feel that, that someone is in, in that position. So, no, I, but with the particular case of Paula Venels and her, and her CBE is different. Uh, and that's, and I think that it's, it's just, it's just, it is just too easy. And I think that in, if any of us had done a thing like this, the best thing we could do would be to spend the rest of our lives putting it right. And I don't think taking away her, her little medal will, will actually make that more likely. Yes. Let's just finish up, uh, Peter, because I know you, you wrote about it this weekend, the film about Nicholas Winton's life. Um, a remarkable yeah. man, a remarkable story. Um, but you were interested <laughs> in, in, in some of the things that have been said around what he did. It's a tremendous story, and I, I think it's one of the most moving things that, that anyone's ever seen when he was in the studio with, with, in, on Esther Ransom's programme and suddenly found that everybody in the room with him owed their lives mm. to what he'd done. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to have done and a, and a tremendous story, but the film has elements in it, as some people nowadays do when they look back on this era, suggesting that the, the, the asylum seekers of today are the same problem as the as, as the Jews who were being persecuted uh, in Germany in the late 1930s. By the time Nicholas Winton did what he did in Prague, it was known uh, that the that the German regime was actually homicidally uh, homicidally attacking the Jewish population mm. of that country, and it was it was it desired to kill them because they were Jews. And this, of course, is a is a problem which does not go away. It, it lies behind what Hamas did on October the 7th mm. at, at Gaza, and it lies behind the creation of the whole state of Israel. It's a very large, complicated, and painful subject. It shouldn't be, in my view, separated. Uh, it, it should, in my view, I, I'm sorry, it should be separated from other instances of, of people seeking refuge, unless they are exact parallels. I have yet to see one. Mm. There are little bits in the film which suggest that the makers wanted to suggest it was the same thing. It was not. It was a unique occasion. And one thing, another thing we need to remember here is that we didn't fight the Second World War to save the Jews of Europe. On the contrary, as soon as the war actually got underway properly, all efforts to save Jewish children in Germany and Czechoslovakia uh, were, were at an end. That finished. And almost all pleas to do anything about the problem for the rest of the period of the war uh, were ignored, even though it, it did, by about 1940 two or three, I, I seem to recall, mm. uh, the Foreign Office in London and 
their equivalents in Washington, D.C., were very well aware of the mass murder which was going on. Very little was done. We shouldn't congratulate, congratulate ourselves over much. We should certainly honor Nicholas Winton and all those people who did personally tremendous things to save Jews. We shouldn't congratulate the rest of ourselves all that much about it, though, because it, uh, it wasn't a particularly shining episode no. in the history of this country or many no, others. I think so. Peter, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens there from the Mail on Sunday uh, with his view. Uh, very much different from most people's that the CBE uh, should not be handed back. She should not be stripped of it. We'll talk some more about that. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, and you better stay watching because in three minutes, I'm going to take down the mayor of capitulation. That's right, Sadiq Khan, who caved into the RMT this weekend. And I'll also be taking your calls, of course, 0344 499 1000. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. It's hard to imagine what life might be like under a Labour government headed by Sakir Starmer, isn't it? I mean, the man they call a safe pair of hands is hardly playing a blinder, is he? Only yesterday, he was stuck in goal for his Sunday league football team and it wasn't a great success. In fact, his team lost 14-8 which sounds more like a rugby score than a football one. And one picture shows goalie Starmer trying and failing rather awkwardly to stop one of the goals from going in. Still, he does talk a good game, like he does on striking unions, like he does on immigration, like he does on his new Green Deal, all of which he has flip-flopped spectacularly on recently. For instance, Labour's leader has said he would have more meaningful dialogue with union leaders like Mick Lynch from the RMT or Dr Rob Lawrenson from the BMA, whatever that means. Luckily for us, though, there are other ways to determine what Labour in power would actually look like. And I can tell you, it ain't pretty. Last night, at the 11th hour, in the final minute of the 11th hour, to be precise, London's Mayor Sadiq Khan stepped in to the long-running dispute between the RMT Rail Union and Transport for London. Tube trains were due to be cancelled for the entirety of this week, leaving millions of commuters stranded and forced to either work from home or struggle in through hours and hours of traffic jams. But just minutes before the strike was due to start, Sadiq announced the strike was off because he'd found some extra money from somewhere. Quite how much remains unclear. But we all know where that somewhere is, of course. It's from you and me. Given that the extended London ULES fees and fines are bringing in hundreds of millions of pounds to the Khan coffers, it's probably not going to be too hard to work out just where the cash is coming from. But it's a bad look, isn't it? Because all that Khan's intervention has proven is that he will bow to the will of the powerful union bosses. And, I mean, what happens the next time they threaten to strike? The odious Mick Lynch is already boasting that the extra money being made available is going to be a game-changer when it comes to urgent negotiations for the future. Well, I think we should be told under whose authority Khan is operating. After all, this is the guy who promised zero strike days during his last election campaign, and since getting in, we've had to suffer 130 strikes. That's right, 130. Now it's clear he's in the pocket of the extreme left. There can only be worse to come. And all this while London gets ever more dangerous ever more expensive and more difficult to get around. It really is time to get this overpaid, overbearing and self-aggrandising mayor replaced by someone who cares about our great capital city and all the people living and working in it, not just the ones he gets to vote for him. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch, so let's hear now from a caller. Rob is in Sussex, wants to talk about the justice system. Hi, Rob. 
Hello, Mike. How are you doing? You're good, okay, sir. Yeah, what can I do for you? Yeah, I was just watching you earlier on and you making a comment with regards to the post office scandal and, and also sort of coupled with the NHS sort of mental health, really. Mm. And to be brutally honest, I think they're linked because they spend so much time procrastinating. It knackers that everyone's mental health in, in the long term. Yes. Well, I mean, there's plenty of reasons for, I suppose, some people to be... Uh... Bad, badly off mental health-wise. But my worry is, is that more and more people claiming benefits because they say they've got bad mental health is a recipe for disaster because a lot of people will basically end up abusing it. But we'll talk some more about that. Robin Sussex, thanks for making the call. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Plenty more in store over the next hour. Why soaring mental illness, as we say, is set to send disability claims through the roof and how Storm Hank has created a rodent hellscape. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, over one million people called for the former CEO of the post office to be stripped of her CBE as the Horizon scandal dominates the headlines. Sick note Britain, meanwhile. Two million people will be claiming disability benefits by 2030, pushing the cost to taxpayers higher than ever before. And Britain is under rat-tack as Storm Hank and bin collection delays create a rodent hellscape. Uh, is it snowy where you are? There's a yellow weather warning, but no snow. Are us Brits just snowflakes when it comes to the weather? It's good, that, isn't it? Uh, you can get in touch with me. The Republic's phone lines and mail room are open for business. Uh, call on 0344 499 1000. Text the word TALK plus your message to 87222. Or tweet me at TalkTV using the hashtag IROMG. Calls will cost just the national road. Now, who can forget the scenes at King Charles's coronation last year when Penny Mordaunt carried a 17th century sword through the ceremony like some kind of Star Wars character at the crowning of a new rebel leader? Her place in the history of the nation was cemented forever, and not least now that the sword of state has become a top attraction at the Tower of London, along with the crown jewels. Now the leader of the House of Commons wants to help out with another more thorny part of our history, and it's a very valiant attempt to make sure that our own narrative about Great Britain is not hijacked or rewritten by the wokists and the apologists for our time as rulers of large parts of the world. After all, it's hard to find any academics, any students or any professors in this day and age who will not call the British Empire a ghastly episode in our past that should be expunged from books, should become compulsory to condemn and should be something of which we are all ashamed. And there are plenty of our own politicians who you would think would know better than to slag off our forebears. Well, I, for one, am not having any part of that anti-British sentiment or the twisting of actual real events. And I'm happy to say that neither is Penny Morden. She supports the reverse point of view, and that is that the United Kingdom should be encouraged to remember exactly what actually happened during those tempestuous times. And now she's supporting calls for a memorial to the contribution made by the Royal Navy to end the slave trade. So rather than encouraging people to hate their own country, she wants instead to celebrate it. And quite right too. Writing this week, Penny states that contrary to popular belief, the UK was in fact the first country to abolish slavery. And many of our sailors paid the ultimate price for doing so. 
Penny is calling for the recognition of the Royal Navy's West African Squadron, which seized hundreds of vessels bound for the Americas, freeing huge numbers of men, women and children. Between 1807 and 1867, it freed more than 150,000 people and over 1,500 British sailors lost their lives. So let's get behind her call for a statue to be unveiled at the Houses of Parliament, depicting slaves being freed by a British naval officer. Let's have no more pulling down of statues, covering up of paintings and shaming of families with ties to those days. Britain has much to be proud of. Let's start 2024 with this great project. Now, later on in the show, we'll bring you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. Uh, and what I can tell you is it's all about Keir Starmer. We've talked about him already. Uh, but Keir Starmer, I'm afraid to say, actually volunteered to work for a stream of evil killers, including a monster who buried alive his two-year-old stepkid. The Labour chief boasted last week about his international legal work fighting against the death penalty. But the Sun tonight reveals that his free-of-charge clients included Jamaican Lambert Watson, who murdered his girlfriend uh, and nine-month-old baby by stabbing them in the neck. Sakir also worked free-of-charge to overturn the death penalty across Africa and the Caribbean. Uh, in Malawi, he worked on behalf of Francis Kafantaini, who tied up his two-year-old stepson and buried him alive. Uh, he also worked with Geoffrey Mpondo, who was convicted of murdering his ex-wife, as well as setting her house on fire and removing her private parts. He was freed as a result of the ruling. Um, actually, incredible stuff. Uh, crazed maniac uh, who chopped up a mum in front of her children was one of just 417 killers who benefited from anti-death penalty rulings that Starmer fought for in Uganda as well. So we'll talk more about this when we get our panel in later on to look at the stories. But that's in the sun tomorrow. Uh, and we'll bring you an awful lot more on the secret history of Starmer and exactly who he did represent when he was actually working as a lawyer. Now, Britain is grappling with a sickness explosion that is costing the economy £15 billion a year. But it's set to surge to £17 billion. It's forecast that 2 million more people will claim disability benefits by 2030, as mental illness and depression and anxiety are now the leading reasons adults out of work are claiming disability benefits. To discuss this more, uh, I'd like to welcome psychotherapist Lucy Beresford to the show. Lucy, very good evening to you. Welcome to the brand new spanking independent Republican Mike Graham. Sorry you're not here uh, to see the fantastic things that are going on uh, in the studio, but next time we will get you in for sure. Um, Lucy, this is a story that a lot of people will understand um, is probably expected to happen and probably in some ways is a good thing. But my worry about anybody who claims to be suffering from anxiety and particularly suffering from depression is that when you're dealing with the state, it's too easy, isn't it, for the state to just go, oh, OK, here's some money, see how you get on with that. And that's not really going to help them. I'm not really sure that that is the situation, actually, that there are quite a few hoops that very many people have to jump through in order to prove that they have a clinical diagnosis of depression. And by that, we mean a persistent negative or low mood state that lasts for a minimum of two weeks. And also, if you're in employment, you will have employers who are going to be trying to make you go to work and therefore you will have to in a way demonstrate this has been part of the problem for so long is that people have felt they've had to flagellate themselves in order to prove that they have a mental health concern and my worry is that this is actually going to 
re-stigmatize something that we've made so many strides in the past for actually stepping away from this idea that we should shame people who have a mental illness or who or maybe even disbelieve them but actually we're in danger of going back on that yeah, I don't think it's it's about shaming people or or doubting them in a way. It's just about not so much depression, more about the anxiety word, I suppose, because an awful lot of people, as you know better than I, um, will say that they're suffering from anxiety. Some of them may well be, but what I'm saying is, is that if the state is expecting to pick up two million more people because of the situation that they find themselves in, people say they suffer from anxiety a lot more now than they used to. It doesn't mean that maybe more people are suffering now from anxiety. It may just mean that in the past they kind of dealt with it in a different way. I'm just wary, if you know what I mean, Lucy, of, of creating a place where people can just fall in and never come out. Because that's what we've seen with an awful lot of people who are currently inactive, who are currently in receipt of benefits. I'm not saying they don't deserve to get them, but I'm saying that we should have a better method of getting them back to work and getting them back on their feet, shouldn't we? Yes, there are a couple of things to say about that. I mean, unfortunately, mental health services have been the Cinderella service within the NHS for a very long time. And actually, people have been struggling to get treatment or even a diagnosis. And therefore, in a way, our heart should go out to those people who've been struggling for so long. But for sure, I mean, I think it was Jean-Paul Sartre in the 1930s who said that to be human is to be anxious. And even Freud talked yeah, about the worried well. That actually, we can't live on a permanent upward trajectory. Trajectory, no. that actually we do have to take the rough with the smooth. It's about our capacity for resilience. My observation is that the pandemic has had a very cruel legacy in this regard, that actually a lot of people have had their, what I might call their everyday anxieties, turn into something much more florid. And that's the problem. We've actually got people whose mental health issues have escalated. For sure, we need to take personal responsibility for a lot of the uh, mental wellness that we might have in life. It's our responsibility perhaps to develop resilience. If our parents weren't able to instill it in us or encourage it, we, perhaps we didn't go to schools or brownie or scout camps where certain things or the Duke of Edinburgh Award, which have been designed really to develop coping strategies in life because we all need them no matter what yeah. level of society we're at but at the same time please not let us forget the people who are really in dire need of help and the problem with the pandemic is that that has actually escalated that we have got a lot of people who are inactive who could perhaps go back to work and it would be better for the government to spend a little bit of money to help those people back into work because actually even just from a financial point of view that would actually help the economy but from a personal wellness point of view that would actually mm. instill a lot of confidence in a lot of people but please don't underestimate that there are a lot of people who are struggling right now no i'm and sure I'm, I'm sure there are but you know there were a, a lot of there were also an awful lot of people struggling when we were a much less wealthy society and i know that there are people who will say well not everybody's wealthier but we are all a lot better off uh, than they were uh, in the 60s and the 70s. And I can tell you that because I lived through the 60s and 70s and people were, you know, not... Well, in the, likewise. Uh, and uh, in that case, you will, have, you will have been raised, perhaps, by people who went through... who You were raised by a generation, maybe, who were taught to develop that stiff upper lip, who were, who were encouraged not to show their feelings. 
Well, and no, that's not true. Because my that's no, that's not true. No, problem. no, but it's not because that would suggest that my parents didn't show their feelings. That's not true either. But my mother happened to be running in and out of uh, bomb shelters when she was seventeen, um, so she didn't, in, in, you know, include or imbue me uh, with something that I should complain about every five minutes. That's true. But when you see people who say that, you know, I'm feeling anxious about the climate, I think I'm going to have to take the rest of the week off. You know, those are the kind of people I'm talking about, not the ones who might need proper help, which they may or may not be getting, but the people who we're giving an opportunity, if you like, to swing the lead, to just kind of go, oh, I just don't really feel like it today. Well, you know, it's not the government's responsibility, it's not taxpayers' responsibility to pay for that. It's very difficult, isn't it? Because, yes, rather like you, you know, my mother was an evacuee and my father was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp and they got through it. And one doesn't really understand how they got through it, but they did. But the mm. repercussions of that, one, they, and they weren't unemotional people. And I'm not trying not to say that there was a whole generation who were unemotional, but they, they, they had different coping strategies, is all I would say. Right. And the generation that comes next always thinks to themselves, I'm going to do it differently. I'm not going to do it how my mum and dad did it. I don't want to raise my children in the way that I was raised. Um, and, and what that ends up doing is it, it kind of swings the pendulum the other way. And so I hear you that there is a, there is an, there is a worry that we might be creating a generation or two that don't have the resilience, don't have the coping strategies, and are perhaps turning to the state too readily. But I say again, from my clinical experience, there are too many people who are slipping through the net, who really are struggling. And if we're ending up uh, providing for one or two malingerers uh, who simply can't cope, well, they will get found out in, in due course. What we're really keen to support are the people who really need that support. And unfortunately, whether you like it or not, and and this is a, this is going to be debated for some time to come. The legacy of the pandemic, the legacy of those lockdowns that were unnecessary, and the way in which society has become more atomized, there needs to be a responsibility from the government to recognise that the choices it made during the pandemic have actually impacted people so adversely that perhaps they do actually need a little bit of extra financial support. Mm. Well, I don't think we're ever going to agree on this, Lucy, but we'll meet somewhere in the middle at some stage. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Um, this is, of course, the all-new and sparkling Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up next, the plague of rats swarming Britain, plus your calls and your thoughts. Don't move anywhere. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Now, here at My Independent Republic, we take hygiene seriously. We have a full-time Pied Piper on the payroll to vanquish any and all vermin 24-7, 365 days a year. Britain, on the other hand, is under rat-ack. Floods, funding cuts and bin collection delays have created the perfect storm for rodents. Chief amongst them are, of course, rats. Now, guys, I think we need an expert to sort this out. I'm not sure if this cleaning uh, lark is actually going to work. So, um, hey, what have we got? We have the founder of Petscon and Apprentice star, Mark Mosley. Mark Mosley, welcome. But Thank be you very careful, much. Mike. 
he may be contaminated. Well, I'm hoping that you've taken care of all of that. You know, we've got some special contaminated juice over here if he gets too near me. Uh, we'll pour you out some of that. Mark, good to see you. Uh, to see thanks you. very much for joining us. You know, I've become famous for my rat impersonation, um, which is this. <laughs> um, I do it every time I talk about rats. I'm obsessed with rats because I see them everywhere. Um, they're all over London. They're on the tube. Um, I've seen them on buses. I've seen them... Um, at Posting sorting offices last Christmas, when, I think Christmas before, they were eating to people's um, uh, presents because they were left outside. People apparently whose houses are getting flooded are going back to them to find that rats are in them. Are there more rats now in Britain than ever? Um, I wouldn't say there's more than ever. It's just that when we're um, in a congested area like London, there's so many people living on top of yeah. each other. And because there's so many people living on top of each other, there's so much food waste. And the reason people are coming home and finding all their presents eaten is because they've got chocolates in yeah. the presents. And rats can smell them. They've right. got the second best nose in the animal kingdom after the African elephant, and they will go straight into the chocolates. But They love um, chocolate, don't they? Chocolate, well, because we keep leaving it out. They love breads because they've been eating it for hundreds of years, but yeah. chocolate, because we keep leaving it out, they love it. Right. So what about chicken? Because, I mean, when you walk around the streets of London, um, you can't go literally 20 yards without seeing yet another chicken shop selling some kind of uh, variation of, you know, Kentucky fried chicken, some other chicken, southern fried chicken, you know, Bermondsey fried chicken, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, it's all fried chicken. But there's so much food on the streets. That's it. Well, they'll set their diets to whatever's available. So yeah. these bin collections, as you mentioned, they are overflowing bins at the moment, especially yeah. where we look after in South London. There's bins overflowing. Christmas, they just don't collect them, do they? No. Well, you used to see some of the bins we've seen recently in Battersea and things, and there's foxes yeah. ripping the bins open, the rats are going through yeah. the bins. It's just absolutely pandemonium. And we're trying to actually control these rats in these areas by putting pest sides down and it we're sort of fighting and losing battle a little you bit. You can't really kill them. Can we you? can't obviously eradicate. It's impossible to eradicate these uh, things once and for all. Yeah. All that we can do is control them. That's sort of what. What we about super do. rats? Because we did a story on them last year. That in some parts of Britain, the rats are getting so big they're literally you know three four feet long. It all comes down. You've seen what, those? Yes. Well, I've you seen, have. I see one about um, yeah August last year. It was uh, yeah size of a, a small cat if you like. And the reason is, is because of our diets. We're eating fattier yeah. foods, sugary foods, and that's being passed down the food chain to the rats. Yeah. So obviously we're getting bigger. The rats are getting bigger, and that's the way it's always. And do they live in the sewers as well? Uh, they will sort of um, move between the sewers. They'll live just uh, next to the sewers, and that's how they travel from A to B. But yeah, they say uh, there's about one rat every square meter in the sewer line. So yeah, they reckon you're never more than about seven feet away from a rat. Because always underneath your feet. So there's. Yeah. That's, that's true. But that's when you terrifying. get to the countryside, not so much. But in London, yes, you're never more than seven right. feet away from a rat. And when you got foxes and rats in the same sort of neighbourhood, who wins? Is there a kind of well, a yeah, foxes, war of well, attrition going on? Yes, well, foxes will go for the bins. The rats will come out to uh, feed from the, what the foxes have produced from the bins. And then the foxes will then try and eat the rats. And yeah. the rats are trying to eat the mice. It's this big food chain that's yeah. going down. And we're actually to blame. We need to start putting bins in hardened containers and actually start controlling bin collections. And they need to be uh, a lot better, more frequent yeah. once a week. But unfortunately, council budget are getting absolutely What do you make of, of these people in some uh, boroughs, as, as, as certainly in some of the London, ones in London, where they want you to put your food out into a recycling, you know, separate recycling thing? As long as Keep it's got it to be under in a hard, the sink. It's, it's got to be in a hardened container. I'm not having that. I mean, if you drive through parts of Chelsea, you'll see on a certain day, all the bin bags are just put on the floor. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. Mayhem. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. You yeah. Know, this is meant to be one of the nicest places to live in London. I used to live in Hastings, right? On bin day, if you didn't have a wheelie bin, and not everybody did, the seagulls used to wait. Because yeah, well, the seagulls the were very will clever. Get in. I don't they understand. knew, and they literally dive bomb the street. <laughs> they dive and, bomb you for your chips. Yeah, yeah. Dive, dive bomb you for your kebab and everything. But literally, the streets are just covered in litter. 
And of course, the bin men didn't bother picking it up because they're like, oh, well, it's the bag, bag's burst. And once the bag's burst, that's it. No one's going to pick it up. Everyone leaves it. And that's it. I mean, I was outside a um, well known supermarket the other week. Uh, it's four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And one of the supermarket people was rolling out eggs to the foxes. And then a rat ran past, and the fox went fast, past for the rat. And you think, this is a supermarket. Right. They should know better. Don't they're, feed them. They're feeding the pests. People so. do, though, don't they? People feed foxes. This is the problem. They're sitting in their garden feeding the foxes, and all the vermin are coming. Nice. I write quite a lot about it in my book, Pests of Peace. So okay. go get that. Um, right. But yeah, Any so. Any good tips in there for what to very do if good you tips, see a rat? Everything. So, everything to do if you see a rat in your garden, what you need to be doing. Squirrel feeders is a big one. Yeah. Uh, bird feeders. As soon as that food from the squirrel feeder hits the floor, rats that could be living under your decking or feeding from your compost heap, they're yeah. coming out to feed. So, look after your compost heaps, get it in a hardened container. If you've got decking, try and have a hard underlay underneath your decking. And bird feeders, please, please, please try yeah. and get a catch to under your bird feeders. Right. Now, you've been catching some of these rats. We've got some pictures, I think, to show everybody. They're a bit graphic, by the way. So if you're eating your dinner, particularly if it's fried chicken, uh, there's a bit of blood there. Um, that's something... I don't know whether these are rats that's that have That's the rat that was the big one that was underneath the bath. The other one we caught with... Underneath the bath? That was underneath oh. the bath panel, yeah. The other ones, we had to put glue right. boards out. We checked them every two hours and we caught uh, four baby rats and then mum had actually been whacked with uh, one of the traps over the head and that was the picture I right. took. But, yeah... Um, yeah. Do you get any trouble from the sort of, you know, the, the green brigade saying, oh, you mustn't kill them, don't put any poison down. I've been shouted at by people. I had a guy in Brixton shout at me because I went, I drove past in a pest control van once yeah. and he said, you're a murderer. And I just <laughs> thought, this is crazy. I mean, I don't know what to do for the best. We could actually just not control all these pests. Yeah. It'll be overrun and then diseases start but that's spreading. that's it. Like the bubonic plague yeah. in the past. And then, you know, yes, we've got medicine for these these days, but another disease will take yeah, hold. Yeah, but you don't want to get bitten by a rat, do you? Uh, not bitten, it's more to do with the fleas, the blood diseases they right. carry, survival And what disease. about the floods? Why do the rats come more to well, houses that have been flooded? They could be living on the banks of the rivers, they've been destroyed, so the rats then move. And not only that, obviously the, the sewers are now flooded, so the rats have to move out of the sewers because their home's destroyed, and that's when they start seeing them on land. And when the pandemic hit, you had all these rats that yeah. left London because all this food waste is not yeah. there anymore because the restaurants are That's right. So they've gone out to the residential areas, they're now in the residential areas... And they've actually stayed there. Mm. They've set up a territory. They found the food sources. Now this left a massive gap for the huge population. So yeah. now we've got the rats now back in the big cities. We've got the rats in the residential areas. So it's as actually increased in these mm. residential areas, and we're seeing more and more of them. So got to sort out the food waste and the bin collections. Sounds dreadful. I mean, some people think that some rodents are actually, um, you know, not quite so horrendous. I'm not one of them, but I'm told we've got a little mouse to look at here, um, who is actually uh, mouse proud. Um, <laughs> apparently um, tidies up a man's shed every night. Now, this is quite interesting. I'm not sure if it's tidying up or whether it's just finding things to eat. It's a witch, that's a wood mouse, is what they do. Um, they cover over there, usually, it's probably food or something in there, it covers it over, one, to actually try and save it. It might be right. winter time and it also... It makes a little wants, nest or something. It does, and it covers over the food because it wants uh, no other mice to actually feed from it. So it's not actually being house pride, it's probably covering over food. Wood mice do this, or they're also known as field mice, they do this all the time. So, um, yeah, it's covering over something, basically, to keep it for itself. Like, squirrels will hide their nuts, um, these will hide their foods by covering it over. Watch out for squirrels hiding their nuts. Blimey. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, um, that's enough rat talk. Uh, I can't take too much of it. Mark, I'm afraid you need to be quarantined before you can leave the building. Uh, so the boys over here with the hazmat suits on are going to take care of you. Uh, so very nice to see you. Thanks very Cheers. much indeed. Um, do uh, put yourself through the, uh, the dis disinfectant bath on the way out. Uh, we'll see you after this because we'll take some of your calls. Chris is in Chesterfield. Hello, Chris. He wants to talk about the post office. Chris, very good uh, evening to you. Hi, Mike. What can I do for you, Chris? 
Um, right, this post office scandal. I was working in the post office at the time in Chesterfield where we used to reconcile all the old cash account data in the old paper days. Um, it was a massive undertaking, a load of stuff, a load of paper floating around. Uh, the driver behind Horizon was the benefits agency because it was costing them an absolute fortune to pay out benefits at the post office because of the and all that sort of thing. Um, so they pushed computer system, it became something called the post office card account, which was like a sop to the post office to compensate for the loss of the, post, of the benefits agency business. And that was the driver for Horizon. We needed a computer system to reconcile all the card payments. Right. Now, Horizon was flawed right from the start. I know that because I progressed up to project management and we were given an advanced showing of Horizon by a Fujitsu uh, employee. Now, in project management, if you install an IT system, you test it to absolute destruction. You break it as much as you can. That way, you can only find out the bits that don't work, mm. right? Me and another project manager asked him, what's the testing been like for this? And he could not answer. So red flags in my mind straight away about they don't trust this system. It's going to go live in post offices. Tony Blair's already stood up in comments saying it's going to be in there. It's going to be an absolute success. It's going to be fantastic for the branch network. I knew. And then when I started hearing stories about postmasters and massive shortfalls, I'm thinking, I've been proved right here. I flagged up my concerns to management, but because I was only a junior manager, nobody paid any attention to me. So they didn't listen? So... Go on. They didn't listen to you at all? No. Like I say, I was only junior, so... My influence didn't go very far. I, I shouted from the rooftops, but nobody listened. Right. And what actually was it that was, that was wrong? Because, you know, we've talked an awful lot about why somebody should have noticed, why somebody should have done something. But what was wrong with the actual system? From my point of view, the testing wasn't complete. When I asked the question about the testing of the system, the information was, well, we don't know, we'll come back to you. I never got an answer back. Yeah. So my view was... There's flaws in this system, this system that they know about, but they're not going to do anything about it. It's going to be put into the network, and there will be problems in the network once it's installed there, and it came to pass. Hmm. When I was on the paper cash count days, we never had shortfalls in thousands and thousands of pounds. But when you hear about Postmasters, and suddenly they've lost £20,000 overnight, yeah. the cash is still in the safe, everything else is on the counter, where's this money gone? Yeah. And the heavy-handedness of the post office investigators... We had an incident in Chesterfield in about 1994 where some people were stealing saving stamps, right? Mm. The post office investigators treat you as guilty. You have to yes. prove your innocence. Yeah, there's no, there's no problem at all, is there? Because, Chris, thank you very much indeed for that. Because apparently Tony Blair was actually warned in 1998 that Horizon was increasingly flawed, um, according to a report that we unearthed um, a little bit earlier today. So it's absolutely incredible um, that they wouldn't listen to anybody who wanted to try and explain why it was wrong. But let's get the panel back. Uh, political commentator Chloe Dobbs is here. Uh, of course, Deputy Political Director of the Centre for Social Justice, uh, Sophia Warringer as well. Welcome back. And broadcaster historian Rafe Heidel Mancou. Welcome back. I mean, we're still talking about Horizon because it's the one story that everybody keeps talking about. Um, and it is incredible, isn't it, how they basically took their view, which was that all sub-postmasters and postmistresses were kind of crooks, and then they used this flawed system to prove it, even though none of it was true. 
Mm. It was really interesting uh, listening to the software testing side of it there. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I used to be a payment management software tester. Oh, and did you? Yeah, it's, you know, it was a full-time job all yeah. day, every day, running tests right. through a payment management software system mm. to make sure that there are no bugs and the numbers always match up. It just seems crazy yeah. to me that this slipped through the net and wasn't tested properly. Um, and that when assessing... Um, you know these these uh, when assessing these people that supposedly stole the money that yeah. they didn't look properly into the software and see if there are any no. problems. With it. it seems they just thought oh, it didn't occur to anybody. They just thought money's gone, convicted. Right, it, and the money, as crazy. we just heard from our caller there, Sophia, wasn't actually gone. It was there, but the machine was telling them the money wasn't there, and it sort of confirmed their bias, if you like. And so they were like happy to go with that and say, "Well, you've obviously stolen it." And that's the problem. It was the machine making the decision. Mm. As we look towards a future where artificial intelligence may be making more and more of these type of decisions, we yes. need to learn from tragic cases like this and ask the question of where human agency and human reason to assess the situation of why suddenly hundreds of sub-postmasters were all across the country not talking to each other, stealing money overnight, why no one took a step back mm. and made that decision, which a human could do very easily, yes. but a computer and other systems, are, we look to seeing more of those running things like post office accounting mm. in the future, don't make as easily. And it does make me concerned about the future of AI and what people say that yes. will bring in and how lack of human judgment won't be a part of that. Well, that's a good point, isn't it? Because AI is now in everybody's mind. I think there's a, a Las Vegas show this week where loads of AI, new AI stuff is going to be unveiled by various American cyber companies. And we're sort of on this headlong rush into all AI stuff is coming, it must be good. It won't be, will it? No, well, it shows you that, you know, the willingness of people to put their common sense aside when, and rely on technology when it's quite clear to anyone now, not just in hindsight, you know, sub-postmasters are the backbone of England. Mm. These are the most decent people you could possibly imagine. And the idea that, you know, ladies with nice permed hair and others are going to be some sort of career criminals when they've got a previously unblemished record. I mean, yeah. it's just common sense. Somebody in a small village in Oxfordshire right. is not a mastermind criminal. No, and they're not all working together. And if all of these mistakes are being made, you would think somebody might go, maybe these are a mistake. Mm. It's just beggar's belief. Speaking of more uh, technology, a little story here saying energy firms have been given the green light to force-fit prepayment meters for the first time. Um, I don't know why they've managed to get this one through because I thought we were going in the opposite direction where you couldn't force people to have a prepayment meter, but now the courts have said that you can. Well, I mean, as much as we need to protect people who need heating mm. and need energy, it, you know, it's also not something that is completely free. There are private companies here which, you know, they need to operate. We don't want to lose them. We need to have these energy companies. And if it's the case that you can put your heating on full blast all year, yeah. and nobody's ever going to come after you for the money. Yeah, no, There's I get a, that. clearly quite a bad moral hazard there. So I, I understand the logic behind it. And they've put in place this policy with lots of very clear restrictions mm. as to when you can put in these pre-payment right. meters. So I think you have to go after the person that hasn't paid about 10 times so. before you can put one in. I suppose so. And you but can't do it to see... over 75. But did we not see just last year, the Times did that investigation into companies that were putting um, quite a lot of effort into breaking into people's houses, but effectively, and putting these meters in. And it wasn't being run very well. So I think you have to be, you know, was, slightly I optimistic. Was, I, I might be wrong, but I think that wasn't that... British gas it that was we're British seen gas, doing that, yeah. and they're not being included. It's EDF, Octopus, yeah. and Scottish Energy. Yeah, I but think what I'm saying is, it's, it's an this. otherwise what you might call respectable energy company who are doing things which are pretty 
below the belt and possibly illegal. Yes, but I, think, they have these to new, stop I think these it. new rules are very clear and actually they come with unlimited fines. This mm. is very important. They're actually very fully enforceable. Yeah. They were going to be a voluntary scheme, yeah. but now it's got the force of, of law behind it. And I think that the safeguards are very good. I mean, it was scandalous what British Gas were doing, yeah. preying on the vulnerable and the most disadvantaged. This says if you're over 75 or if you have a, if you have a family mm. with a child under two, or if you are, have, have health issues, or you yeah. have you know, medical equipment that requires energy, then you, you're not allowed to have these systems in place. It could go further. It should actually be children under five, because we know those early years, zero to five, are so important, and there are all sorts of issues in development yeah. if you don't have access to proper heating and so forth. So it could, it could go further. I'm just rather I think it's very good about giving companies access to property by law, which they can use just to install some kind of meter. It just seems wrong. I do think that for me, is the problem. It's the forced entry yeah. into the property. And again, one of the conditions where people are allowed to be exempted from this happening to them is if they have a health condition where they require need to be warm. Mm. And on days like today when it's freezing, I don't know anyone who has not got the requirement of needing to be warm. Yes. So I do think some of those areas are quite grey and that consideration of people forcibly entering a home I don't think should be used we need to be understanding why these people are struggling so much in the first place to pay these bills and there's debt repayment plans that can be put in place there's yeah. charities that can support them to tackle their debt in a manageable way and break it down and pay things off and move towards a debt-free future and that needs to be put in place rather than forcibly breaking yeah in. I think so because I think we all know I mean we were talking earlier in the hour about um, you know this business of having you know another two million people who are going to be claiming benefits because they're suffering from some kind of depression or anxiety or something like that we also know the unspoken sort of truth is that there's a couple of million people in this country um, who are kind of below the line of everything you know they don't really pay for anything they don't really pay for their property they rent probably but they get that paid for by the council they're on benefits so mm -hmm. they don't really pay for anything at all and they probably don't have the money to pay for their electricity uh, or their gas and so what do you do with people like that? Yeah, it is difficult because it, it does seem sort of immoral to have people who, especially if they are capable of working, yeah. if, you know, there might be the case that you have got some people blagging, you know, they're a little bit upset and they decide, oh, I'm depressed, yeah. let me get all the benefits. Um, we don't know, it's always hard to measure to what yeah, extent that happens. Yeah, but there's a lot of them, and my view um, would be But you can, yeah, you can, stack, you can stack all these things up, and it yeah. really doesn't seem fair if you've got... You know, you've got people, we've now got this rise of the working homeless, right? Yeah. People who are working a full-time job but still can't even afford to pay rent. Yeah. Whilst you've got other people who aren't working at all and have everything paid for and them and now repay. don't have to pay energy right. for energy at all, potentially. Right. It so just what seems you, unfair. But, but it is unfair, but that's what I'm saying. What do you do about that? You can't force people who break the law uh, into not breaking the law. It's a bit like telling people who don't have insurance on their car, well, you must get insurance on your car or else we're going to fine you. They're not going to pay the fine. They're not going to get insurance. There's no, there's no real instant kind of fix for that. There's not, sadly, and society's never going to be perfect. And there's always, yes, you could spend a load of money on enforcement to make sure that there isn't a single person breaking the law, but it's not going to be but worth that won't it. Work opportunity either. cost, right? We, we sort of just have to accept that there are always going to be some people who manage to bend the rules no, and live in an unfair right. way. Sadly. We will have to accept it, but we don't have to keep encouraging them to continue to do it and to increase the numbers. Yeah, there are things we can do to you know, stop it. Like if people start telling me they're anxious about so the climate, I'm not giving them a week off. I'm going to tell them just to you know, put a coat on and come in. I think that's such a good point there that we've seen those numbers of people who are being signed off work for anxiety and depression and they are forecast only to go up. Mm. And I think your point is correct in that 
for too long we have seen the anecdote to mental health to being off work, to be yeah. isolated, to be at home, right. to recover. And while that may be the case for some people and that needs to be still be in place if that's helpful for them, actually work can be part of the mm. solution of, of people coming back into full health and not being isolated yes. and not being stuck in loneliness. So the numbers of people who are claiming welfare and over 50% of them report having anxiety or depression, the answer to them must not be park them on welfare no. and leave them there right. because that will make their mental ill health even worse, most likely. It must be a stepping stone back into work and therefore the welfare system bill is just going to continue to rise unless we see work mm. as the solution to some yeah. of these ills. But well, I think that's right. Importantly, this is also another unintended consequence of lockdown, yeah. right? Absolutely. The most disastrous public deci health decision yes. in, in our Isn't history. Isn't it funny, though, how many people now say that it was wrong who didn't say it was wrong at the time? You know, we've been saying it was wrong for a very long time since it was going on. You know, so I, I'm saying since my kids were told not to go to school, should, kids should be going to school. And now everybody says, oh, of course, it was a bad idea not to send kids to school. Absolutely, and there are 140,000 kids now who are out of school mm. more than they are in school. Right. And that's what we have found in our research at the Centre for Social Justice, where I work. These kids from the most disadvantaged families yeah. who are opting out of education, and then what is their future? Their future is probably... Very difficult finding a job. Mm. More likely to get involved in crime. That's yeah. what we found. Families that are really struggling. Parents who are not necessarily in work themselves. And so the cycle continues. And that, unfortunately, is correct. That mm. lockdown for many people broke the link between school and compulsory yeah. attendance. Yeah. And the problem is it's getting worse. I mean, we're going to be spending by 2030 £80 billion pounds a year yeah. on ill health, which is yeah. half the cost of the entire national service. And this happens at the same time that the public, post-lockdown, are becoming more aware of disability mm. benefits, right. more aware of what they can actually use. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, mean, I saw it with my own children during the pandemic, where, you know, they're sort of, you might call, they didn't have that much respect for the school beforehand, but by the time they hadn't been there for about six months, they had even less respect. And particularly when they went back and the teachers were on strike, and they went, well, they're not bothering to turn up, why should we? You know, and that's the problem. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's quite nice, isn't it, how all of us uh, conspiracy theorists at the time have been proven right well, about the ills exactly of lockdown. Right. Um, and the, the impact on children, you know, such a crucial stage mm. in your life and years that you just don't get back. Um, it, it's just criminal, yeah. um, if you ask me. And what was mad to me was that with the COVID inquiry, they initially weren't even going to investigate the impact of lockdown no. on children, on students They're at all. They're still not really they didn't, doing it very well. They, they didn't think it was relevant. They didn't think it was a big problem. Yeah. And this has affected the mental health of so many children for a long time. It's not the case that as soon as lockdown stopped that all of the mental health problems were solved. No, it's mental... Uh, lockdown put people into the beginning of a downward spiral for a lot of people, both yeah. children and adults, and that are still, you know, several years on, facing the consequences. And that's definitely in part why we're seeing this big rise in the number of people claiming mental health benefits. Yeah. It's not just more people saying, oh, I'm a bit down, I've got depression. You know, genuinely, I do think mental health has declined. Well, I think a lot of it as well has to come back to the NHS and how that's failing people, because I know lots of people who have been trying to get um, access to mental health care for their teenagers, for example. You can't, you get, can't get it. You can't get therapy. There aren't they any, just there give aren't you medicine. Any... They just want to prescribe you medicines, yeah. which is just a Band-Aid. It's mm. really hard to actually get therapy yeah. without paying an arm and a leg for it. Most right. of us, especially in a cost-of-living crisis, can't pay 80 quid an hour plus for yeah. a therapist. It's just not exactly. possible. But also the good enablers of mental 
health in children, young people and in adults have been stripped away. So yeah. we've talked about work being a good enabler of mental health. It supports your mental health. Yeah. Family and the family and home environment is a huge implication for children and young people. And we know that those who have a more stable family structure um, have more positive mental health. But you go to your GP, they won't ask about your yeah. family situation. They will most likely prescribe you a medication. But there's so many non-medical interventions to improve mental health when it's on that lower end. I'm not talking about acute mm. illnesses, which are very much need medical right. attention and clinical but diagnosis. But quite small in number. But those more well-being mm. ends of mental health, things like sport in young yeah. people, looking at the home environment, all of these things are missed from the conversation and they need to be brought back yeah. in. Well, you could go to a classic car show if you wanted to improve <laughs> your mental health, but you can't do it in Bromley anymore. The Bromley pageant of motoring, I'm afraid, has had to be cancelled because it falls inside uh, Sadiq Khan's ULED zone and apparently people would have to pay £12.50 to go there. Uh, not necessarily for the classic cars, I think they're exempt, but if you just wanted to go and see the car show. So they're currently now looking uh, for a new venue. So if you've got any ideas uh, where anywhere outside the ULO zone, this is the same Sadiq Khan, by the way, who suddenly magicked um, a few million quid out of nowhere to settle the uh, RMT dispute. The two stories are linked, aren't they? I, I mean, basically, so. you know, port, uh, you know, 57 or 60,000 ULES payers right. are uh, paying and subsidising for wealthy train drivers and others to, uh, to you know, have a nice uh, extra holiday this year. Yes. I mean, that's the reality of it all. Mm. I mean, I spoke about the unintended consequences of lockdown. This is the unintended consequences of ULES. Yes. Businesses suffering great in times of, mm. you know, fun fairs and all this sort of thing, all mm. being hit by, by this issue. And it's the poor the poorest in society who are paying for this. We know this is not yeah. about clean air, really. No. This is about plugging a hole well, in the air. Well, they're not asking you to clean the air. They're asking you to pay to pollute it. I mean, that's the theory, isn't it? I mean, that's actually what they're doing. They're going, it's no, it's no problem polluting the air. Just give us £12.50. Yeah, get off the road where the air's actually quite clean and then go onto the underground yeah. instead. Which, I mean, have you seen where they take the, the pollution yes. into the dew? It's terrifying. It's not good. It is terrible. Really I didn't realise it was that bad. I think it's got a lot worse recently. I'm sure it wasn't mm. that bad. I mean, I used to go to school when I was 11. It was a very long time ago, uh, I can tell you. Uh, we're firing all cylinders here, though, at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, uh, we're going to be asking if Britain has become obsessed with the weather because we seriously seem to have forgotten how to keep calm and carry on. Plus, we'll have a sneak peek at tomorrow's papers. We'll see you after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. So, was that it then? The dreaded cold snap that we've been warned about for days, the one that was going to bring Arctic conditions, freezing temperatures and ice on the roads. In other words, January. Uh, as the flurries started in the southeast of the country this afternoon, absolutely nothing happened. But don't worry, there were loads of amber and yellow health warnings issued by all sorts of safeguarding outfits. My favourite was the one that came from Dr Agostino Souza, who is apparently the head of extreme events at health protection at the UK Security Agency for Health. He was worried about the well-being of people who are most vulnerable to the cold. Maybe if the cost of energy wasn't so high and people weren't warned off using fossil fuels to stay warm, we wouldn't have such a problem. But let me tell you, all you wokists out there, yes... Those of you who think we can blame all this extreme weather on climate change, cold health alerts don't mean anything. Whether they're amber or yellow really doesn't matter. It's bloody winter time and it's a bit chilly. And nothing about today's weather is in any way entitled to be called extreme. Only the other day we were being told how unseasonably warm it was over Christmas. Now the climate nutters are telling us people might die because of a centimetre of snow and temperatures plunging 
to zero degrees Celsius. Let me tell you, folks, the fact that roads are icy, ungritted and dangerous is a failure of our elected representatives and nothing more. The fact that trains can't run is entirely due to the uselessness of our railways and houses are mostly flooded because of environmental cock-ups up and down the country. Freezing temperatures are entirely normal for a country situated in the North Atlantic in the Northern Hemisphere. Net zero won't stop you feeling cold in January. Net zero won't prevent your car windows frosting up. And net zero won't stop the snow either. There's no snow on the ground in most of the country. For God's sake, grow up. That is the world of woke. It is quite disturbing, that, isn't it? Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here uh, on Talk TV. Let's look at some other stories from tomorrow's papers because the panel uh, is still with me. Uh, we've got some front pages here with us and, and uh, we may talk about the weather in a minute, but it doesn't seem too bad. Uh, Andrew in sex tape shock, calling to the sun. Epstein victims claim. This came out, I think, just before uh, we were about to come on air tonight. Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton and Sir Richard Branson appear in sex tapes, according to bombshell court papers, all filmed by Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, this story just gets more and more bizarre, yeah, doesn't it? and this front page brings back great memories of the glory days of Fleet Street, doesn't it? <laughs> it it's it 1990s all over again. It really does. We have to be clear here, right? We're talking about uh, claims of Sarah Ransom in her, in her deposition, but, yes. this, but the reason that we know about this is because, actually, Alan Dershowitz, who was also one of those accused... Uh, exposed the fact that these claims because he wanted to discredit Sarah Ransom because she later retracted these claims. Yes. So we have to qualify this. Yes, she said that there are sex tapes that she has seen and that she has sent around the world to safe servers. And that she claims to her. show quite clearly the and faces also, of They show the faces of Sir Richard Branson and Clinton and of Prince Edward, but she later retracted that statement. Oh, sorry, sorry, Prince sorry, Andrew. Don't drop sorry. in it as well, for God's sake. <laughs> you have enough problems with one royal, never mind another one. But apparently, that anyway, there, there are actually, to, to link this into another story, there are, in, in, in um, Florida, in the Palm Beach house, there are CCTV cameras yeah. in every single room in Epstein's place. Yes. And there are calls now for that footage to actually be uh, um, acquisition. Commandeered in some way, <laughs> shape or form. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing story, this, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the questions over the weekend were all about what Charles really does with, with Andrew and whether he kicks him out of, uh, of the cottage in Windsor or whether he finds him something to do in some far-flung part of the Commonwealth. It's difficult, isn't it? It's definitely a difficult one for the royal family because on the one hand, you know, they don't like to rock the boat and no. get involved in, in news stories, but also, in this instance, doing nothing mm. could also be... Even you can't more, just do nothing. It would be even right? more scandalous to do nothing. Yeah. So he sort of has to do something. It's, yeah. They're going to have to tread I mean, lightly. I'm sure this... that the press team in... Uh, in um, in Buckingham Palace are going crazy running mm. around trying to figure out what to do right now. I mean, purists on, on this will say, hang on a minute, you know, Andrew hasn't been found guilty of anything. He's been accused of an awful lot of things, but he hasn't actually been in a court of law. He hasn't been charged with any crime. Is it really fair to, to allow all of this to kind of rain down on the royal family? And, and what do they do about it? Well, he settled, didn't he, before he was drawn yes. to a court. So it's obviously something he and the royal family want to avoid. But mm. it's very difficult for the royal family because, as you said, there is no trial, so therefore there is no definitive decision. Yeah. Um, but they're also not just a business and a firm, as mm. they call themselves. They are also a family. And yeah. the bonds of family go deeper than maybe right. the bonds of the royal kind of setup. So yes. it's... One thing to move on a colleague, mm. it's a very another thing to move on a brother. And yes. so I think Much the king has a difficult um, 
task on his hands. Um, and as you said, because there is no trial, because there mm. is no definitive verdict, it will remain murky. And everybody <laughs> always goes, well, you know, every family's got a kind of a black sheep. Well, not well, I haven't. Not like Prince Andrew. I don't know about you guys, but you know. But but it is it is it is important to state he is innocent under proven guilty well, yeah. in the court of law with regards to these allegations. Yeah, yeah. But the monarchy rests on another court, the court of public opinion. Exactly, exactly and it's, right. It's, and then you know the public we know have found him guilty at least of disgraceful disgraceful conduct for associating with a convicted and sex offender. And that's a bad idea. His, his poll rating is 8% only. Right. So we know that the public actually want to see less of this man. It's hard to know what more the king could do, right? Because he's lost his right. HRH. He's lost all of his military right. ranks and titles. He's lost all of his patronages. He's allowed to really he's, do he's, it. He's, you know, he's, he's living you know, a life of privileged quietness in, in, yeah. uh, in Windsor. Like a monk. But I, at the same time, we now also know, of course, that Prince William has his eyes on Royal Lodge because yeah. he finds Adelaide Cottage with its four bedrooms as too small for yes, them. Well, who would? And so, you know, there are ten bedrooms for a single man in Royal Lodge. Seems mm. a bit excessive. So there's also that to yes. consider. And uh, the King has talked about perhaps withdrawing his funding for Prince Andrew's security yes. of three million pounds a year. If he does that, it's hard to see how. Andrew could stay there. No. Now, there's, there's talk about sending him up to Balmoral to, I don't know... You know just wander about. Grouse. Exile him. <laughs> yeah, just wander that may, about. That may be a future. Him up as, he doesn't have many friends left, you know. It's a salutary lesson. Yeah. Be kind to people on the way up. Exactly. Because you may meet them on the way down. Yeah. And he's not known for being that sort of a person. He's not. My favourite story so far, though, is Channel 4 uh, on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. Apparently, there's a diversity row going on because, shock horror, they've appointed some white people. Um, to their uh, the board of directors. Lucy Fraser, the culture secretary, has approved the appointment of five new non-executive directors to join Channel 4's board. Um, but Sir Ian Cheshire, who's the chairman, says uh, it's lagging behind its own diversity targets. I mean, sorry, is this Channel 4 eating itself? Just get rid of these stupid diversity targets. They shouldn't well, even be true. there in the first place. They really shouldn't. If these white bosses genuinely were the best candidates yeah. for the job, they can have the job. If it was the case that they were chosen because the people choosing them were racist, then fine, but I don't believe that. Doesn't not sound very likely, does it? Britain is one of the least racist countries in the world, yet we're just constantly banging on about stuff like this, presuming that if someone in white is chosen for a job, that yeah. it was an active discrimination against a person of colour. Mm. And do you remember the, the, the BBC Radio 5 um, yes, live host? I do. Who said that his mental health, you know, we're talking about people yeah. moaning about the mental health earlier, his mental health is severely affected by being surrounded by people at work who don't look like him, by yeah. too many white colleagues. Yeah. This stuff's just madness. I've, had, really enou is. I've had enough of it. We've got more important fish to fry. We have. Um, how about this then? Fujitsu, who have been right at the centre of the um, uh, of the Horizon case, because obviously they were the manufacturers of said Horizon uh, IT um, art software. Apparently, they've actually been uh, given a new contract by the government, nineteen million pounds worth, to run England's flood alert system. <laughs> that explains everything, doesn't it? It's two That's failures why, in the bag. Then, you know, maybe. no wonder the place is flooded everywhere you go because Fujitsu are running it. Exactly, and I do think that is something that needs to be reviewed. Those huge companies that have won large contracts and failed to deliver or had a scandal like yes. that has been uncovered in the um, Horizon IT scandal, they should not be going forward 
to get more government contracts no. unless their internal review has happened mm. and they've changed or whatever recompense has been extracted. They can't just be a rollover and a forgiveness, as it were, to the next yeah. mistake just waiting no. to happen. Could we not just promise to pay them 90 million and not give it to them? and just go, actually, we're not going to bother, we're going to keep that. Um, finally, uh, baby killers and axe murderers saved by Starmer. This is uh, a story in The Sun, which makes no bones about uh, uh, trying to stitch him up a little bit, I think. Um, and then they've got a category, four different people who he saved when he was a human rights lawyer uh, from the death penalty uh, in places like Jamaica and Africa. Um, he, told, he said that he worked for free as a lawyer to help loads of people escape injustices, but he seems to have helped some rather horrible people escape the death penalty. I think that that is a good thing. Mm. I do think that he, his role as a criminal defence barrister, he takes the next case that comes to him, lots of lawyers work pro bono, and it's part of their development. And yeah. I do think that we need to understand that even the most heinous criminals deserve fair representation, which he was representing there. And I don't think many people would want uh, the death penalty back in this country, mm. and he was trying to uphold those laws across the country. So I do think it's slightly disingenuous journalism to go against something which we know is the way barristers have to work. Although he was doing it in another country, so I don't know how much that was free and whether or not it was actually subsidised by somebody else. But who knows? Um, we've come to the end, though, I'm sad to say. Um, uh, so there we are. Lots of pictures of um, Taylor Swift on the front pages as well from the Golden Glows. Always. We haven't got time to talk about her sexuality, I'm afraid. Uh, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all of my guests. Thank you to the panel. Uh, I'll see you all tomorrow at 9pm in the newly formed Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Only on Talk TV.